Hello and welcome to COM42 Cast, episode 6, a whole stack of pulsars. My name is Miko Pavlikovsky and today with me is Leonid Belkin, the co-founder and CTO at Stack Pulse. Leo, it's great having you here for the second time too. Thank you, it's always a pleasure, Miko. Really excited to be here with you guys. We started with this new tradition right now to begin with through an awkward question. So here's yours. Okay. If you could have any animal at all as a pet, any in the world, you know, what pet would you choose and why octopus? No, I wouldn't necessarily choose octopus to be my pet animal. As a matter of fact, I'm a big animal fan and uh, I'm not sure if uh, keeping octopus captive is a good thing. You know, for me, I'm a, I'm a cat person. My first cat that is unfortunately no longer with us. If I had to choose anything from a perfect world, I would like have her back with me right now. I was asking about octopus because I watched on Netflix my octopus teacher the other day and they're absolutely crazy. Opening containers and having federated brain and everything. Very intelligent beings indeed. That's exactly why we chose one as our logo, because nobody knows exactly how smart these things are. Yeah, they're kind of like an alien on Earth. Speaking of stackables, what's your favorite and least favorite thing of being a co-founder and CTO? I think my favorite thing about being co-founder and CTO is the amount of creativity you can put in and the freedom you get to work with the people you really enjoy meeting every morning. This is something that I would probably not trade for anything anywhere ever. My least favorite thing, well, you know what, I have to say that I pretty much like being that, so least favorite thing is... It's on the record. Not a show exactly, it's not a showstopper in any case. It would probably come as a surprise, but uh, we work pretty hard at startups. And being a founder means that uh, you're never ever officially off work, right? You, you're, you can be uh, relaxing with your family, but at that very moment, you're still a startup founder. That's the price. It is uh, not low. I'm still paying it for the second time in my career, but it is something to consider for those who are thinking about taking this career direction. And also, you might mention the second time in your career. How bad can it be if you're doing it for the second time, right? Well, you know, maybe I'm uh, enjoying uh, the hardships of a founder life. What do you know? I mean, some people love to suffer, not necessarily speaking from a first-person experience, but could be. Don't discard it as an option. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the suffering of yours. Oh, yes. Why did you start Stackpools? Did you have one moment when you realized, okay, this is a great idea for a company, let's just go do it? Was it a more gradual process? What happened? No, the process was gradual. This was not one of these ideas that suddenly sort of like lights up like an electricity bulb in your mind. I think this process started, wow, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Wow, actually close to 20. Uh, when I first started delivering enterprise-grade software products, right? I'm an enterprise cybersecurity guy. I worked for many, many years for one of the world's largest vendors, Checkpoint Software Technologies, led a big organization there. While we were investing a lot in building, uh, what was at the time, top-notch security products, I saw that delivering on-premises products to customers and them deploying those products in their environments them having to face the operational challenges, dealing with it and so on, always sort of like leaves you in a place where you do really the best you can, but then you still operate the product in an environment to which you don't have any visibility and it always surprises you. And the supportability of these solutions is really difficult. Now, 
Happily, I was not the only one to realize that. And as we started seeing, I think uh, maybe 15 years ago, the industry of software engineering began making its shift to software services, right? For B2B enterprise, it probably started with the players such as Salesforce, right? That have proven that CRM doesn't have to be something you run on premises, but could be consumed as a service. Definitely Microsoft contributed a lot with Office 365 and so on and so forth, right? Bringing the industry to the point where today more and more enterprises are actually looking to consume as much of their business stack as services. Now, that was great and indeed has introduced a lot of improvement on my original hardship and sorrow during those days, which was supporting my products and making sure my customers were actually happy, right? Supporting a service that you operate, you can do a much better job, but, and here's a very significant but, suddenly when you deliver a service, you become responsible for much, much more than just the business logic that you implemented and uh, provided to somebody, right? Suddenly you become responsible, in, in many cases even legally liable, for having that service A, operate properly, available with the desired user experience all the time, B, it gave also new meaning to security operations, because in the past every organization would own security operations for its own critical data assets, its own critical computational assets. Suddenly, when you're a service organization, you are providing service, you are hosting data, being data subprocessor for many other enterprises, both the security and your security operations maturity, as well as the liability and operational maturity of your overall service. It's more than just your data. It's that of your customers. It's a much, much bigger responsibility. And this is what we started seeing and understanding in our previous company, Luminate Security. We were a pioneer in Zero Trust Network Access and what is today called Secure Access Services Edge, S-A-S-E, delivering our service to first Fortune, sort of like Global 2000, and then even to a growing number of Fortune 500 companies. So suddenly the importance of that gets multiplied by the factor of how successful you are in your business, right? Because the more customers you provide service to, the more data and the more people, companies are relying on you operating your environment securely and efficiently, right? And that's actually what led us to an idea of building Stackpulse, automation and orchestration platform focusing on security and operations teams. Why? Because unfortunately, while the industry has seen tremendous progress in automated testing, continuous integration, then uh, continuous delivery, infrastructure as code, etc., operations, both security and cloud ops, etc., still remain much less engineered and much more based on people who know what they're doing which is, uh, we, love, we all love people who know what they're doing, but that doesn't scale. I don't want to rely on, you know, my bank being always there when I need to uh, withdraw some money or transfer some payment just because they have a security operations people that could focus on any problem really quickly or uh, they have operations team that could pull up their service and make sure it works. I really want it to be engineered better. Does that make sense? It does. That brings me to the question. So all of that makes sense, but how is Stackpulse different? How is your offering? You know, what's the unique selling point here? Actually, there's more than one. Let's start maybe with the biggest important point, and then we'll expand from it. In general, what we do to make it really, really simple is we turn 
manual repetitive processes that require know-how into automated right once use everywhere processes that can be launched by both senior and very knowledgeable people as well as by junior and less knowledgeable and ramped up people right turn human processes into automated pipelines that we call playbooks right that's the essence of what we do now you can rightfully ask wait a second there are so many different programming languages automation infrastructures why why would we need another one what's so unique here and here's the thing you see uh, when we looked at how uh, security operations automate their current manual processes and, and by the way they do it we've seen a very clear separation between personas there's always a engineer a person that knows how to automate albeit doesn't know much about the business logic they're automating because they're not analysts, forensic investigators, etc. And then there is the person that is extremely knowledgeable about what needs to be automated, the security analyst, the SecOps person, etc. But these are not engineering state of mind people, right? They don't build software. They execute research processes that sometimes require ingenuity, creativity, etc., etc. And the challenge of using any either purpose designed or general purpose automation infrastructure is the fact that the people that actually have a first-hand experience with the processes and the business logic, they're not the ones doing the automation. And this always means that things are lost in translation. Velocity is much lower. You need to sort of like treat this on a very top-down project level. Like, let's sit down, Miko, you and I, you are the process master. You know exactly what you're doing. I'm your automation architect, engineer. We do dialogues. I understand you to the best of my ability. I give you something and then you figure out that it doesn't really fit the process. And we do a second iteration, a third iteration. And this has been the story of pretty much all the automation capabilities introduced anywhere. Think about like automated testing and the first kind of uh, technologies around that. It's always not only a question of what can be automated, but whether the person that is undergoing that repetitive process that you are replacing can be the very person that implements this automation. So first and most important, you know what? It's not even a selling point. It is a fundamental principle is that we are delivering something that allows the very people that are exhausted by repeating manual processes, that want to become more efficient, that do this on a day-to-day -day basis, these are the ones that have to be able to implement this. And it's not that easy. So this is the first selling point. No middleman. You are an owner of a business process. You're doing automation. So far, are you with me? Yeah, so, so far we're providing easy enough to use tools to automate all of that manual stack so that it can be done by the person who has the knowledge, not someone else who has to implement it for them. Wait, there is more. It's not only about tools that are accessible enough and are easy enough. This is actually tool that should fit the state of mind of that same person. Let me give you an example from a very different department so that we can all relate to it. The thesis is that you can be doing some kind of process multiple times a day, but when I ask you, stop there for a moment, could you please translate this process into like steps, components, flow diagram, you will still have a challenge to do that. Imagine it's like telling your child to go and order their room. 
Like, wait, wait a second, what does it mean to order my room? So I enter the room, wait, there's an algorithm, right? I need to pick up each and every object that is currently either on the floor, on the bed, on the table, on the chair, and then I need to probably classify them by groups. These are books, these are toys, these are clothes. Then I need to think, what is the proper location for each and every group, right? Clothes go into that shelf, books go onto this shelf. Then, what if the space on the shelf dedicated for that group? So, so you see where I'm going with this, right? As a grown-up person, you could easily walk into a room and say, okay, I need, to, I need to arrange this room, it's a mess. But if I asked you, let's now automate it, you would find it not easy. It would require a couple of iterations, and when I say a couple, I don't mean necessarily two, for you to actually think about it as a process. So the tool doesn't need to be only accessible for the technical merit. Like, let's say you're not familiar with any programming languages, let's make it accessible for you. That's, that's great, that is needed, but that's not sufficient. What is sufficient is that the way you move from a manual process that you repeat, in many cases, implicitly, without paying attention to order of operations, into your ability to actually, yes, end up with logical flow that can be executed without you being present. It's an iterative process, and the tool needs to fully support that to allow you express it. This, by the way, is one of the underlying reasons why if, if you would told me about your processes, and you're great at the process, and I'm a pretty decent programmer, we would still be in trouble. Not because one of us doesn't know what they're doing, but because of this fundamental thing. And that's what it's all about. Solid. It makes sense. I guess the kind of flip side of that is that, you know, you're offering, it kind of goes very deep into the soft tissue of the teams and the organization, right? It's not just like, oh, hey, use this programming language and we go check it out and we like it, we take it. It takes a little bit more, I guess, to change the processes and it takes a lot of goodwill. What's the kind of like, you know, first steps that the team takes if they want to adopt this kind of thing? So when offering such a product, there is a very gentle balance between A, being opinionated. This process needs to be done like that, right? When you are, I don't know, restarting a server or checking if a port scan alert that has uh, been identified by your security solution is false positive or not, being opinionated and saying this is the industry's best blueprint to do it is something that many organizations would like at least to get from a vendor. And then, of course, they would customize it. So that is on one end of a scale. On another end of a scale is the fact that people are not robots. Therefore, every person building an automated version of the process they are undergoing would expect to be able to express their own creativity. So this entry level into organizations is walking on a very thin line between coming and saying, hey, the value I bring you is not just the fact that you get this tool, but you actually get it with out-of-the-box predefined blueprints that get you from zero to 100 miles per hour much faster than if you wanted to do this thing on your own, which you could do. On the other end, it cannot be rigid. It's uh, going to be a huge turnoff for adoption if it is rigid and people take it and say, yeah, but in my case, it's slightly different. So this is usually the way to enter an organization. You try to bring in value. It's not just a tool that you could build your own house with. It already comes with, uh, I don't know, maybe the garage, maybe the first floor pre-built for you so that you gain incentive very quickly. The time to initial value should be extremely quick. But then, unlike 
many tools. The trick is how do you sort of like go beyond that initial values? We've seen a lot of products that promise you the world and then you buy it because you needed it for a single use case. And because the product isn't really that convenient to use, you just stick with just that single use case that you use it for and that's that. And all the huge promises unfortunately remain unfulfilled. That is the challenge. Quick value with opinionated things. And then this very, very elaborate ability to become customizable, to express your own uniqueness, your own creativity. And if that one works, that's what actually paves the road to wider adoption in the organization. I like how you kind of described it as this thin line. I was in my head comparing this to basically, for example, linters, right? You have an opinionated piece of how you should be doing things that in the grand scheme of things might not have that much influence because they're opinionated by definition, you know, for spaces versus tabs and stuff like that, right? But there is never a linter that everybody's happy with all the time. So it's always a compromise. And people typically don't really like being told how to do things that they have an opinion about if uh, you know they don't see the value. So I think what you said about bringing the quick value for them to see immediately is kind of the only way forward, really. That's a great example. You know what? You got me thinking about how we use linters and we use a lot of linters internally in Stackpulse. And indeed, when I think about the process of us bringing them on board, I think we got the first push by just, you know, let's say day zero, we had absolutely nothing. And then day one, we got uh, things that uh, started bringing in some sort of typical traditional conventions, right? About the curly brackets, about the tabs, very standard things. But then the infrastructure that we use for linters is like a meta uh, linter in which you can inject various plugins and then you have a very flexible configuration for different modules. So for instance, we can now, if I want to add an additional linter to all of the hundreds of our modules of code, we just put it in a central configuration and all the next builds start executing that thing if they're fitting the filter. So today, I think that we are maybe... 50-50 when it comes to A, ready-made linters, B, things that are unique to our environment that were important to us and we implemented it within the same framework. So I think it's a very, very correct analogy where being opinionated gives you a value, but being flexible and allowing to express uniqueness is what keeps you going for the longer term. Definitely. One thing that I noticed when I went onto your website is that you guys talk a lot about reliability, but it appears to be a slightly different definition of reliability than you expect from like a server reliability, basically uptime and stuff like that. How do you define reliability? What does it mean to you in the context of, you know, the processes that we talk about and automating out human error and stuff like that? How do you define it when you say reliability? I think it's a great question. And maybe we could actually extend it because it's not only reliability, but in a moment you will see that we apply exactly the same thing to uh, security and maybe observability. Here is how we define it. From my perspective, what my customer cares about is what I should care about. When I'm providing a digital service, my customer, let's take the reliability example, doesn't really care about the CPU level on my servers. This is my operational issue. If I so desire, I could have a farm of servers, each and every one of them at 90% CPU, etc. Or I could have a much bigger farm where servers are half slacking around with 40% CPU load. That's not my customer's problem. My customer's problem is that when they use my service, 
they get whatever interface, whether API, web interface, mobile app, doesn't matter what they're doing, responsive to their requests as they expected. This is where the framework of service level objectives that later on gets uh, sort of like uh, developed into service level indicators, this is where this thing kicks in. And this is why the reliability of a single point in my architecture, physical server, physical hard drive, virtual network, etc., is not necessarily directly affecting that service level objective that my customer expects me to fulfill. Very similarly, we may look at security issues, right? My customers, when I'm delivering them a service, they provide me certain types of data. So I'm their sub-processor, parts of their data, maybe data of their users, resides inside my boundary. And again, what my customers care about is about data privacy. These are the service level objectives that they set, data privacy, how I operate around it, etc., etc. Whereas they may take lesser interest in which exactly controls with which exact configuration I use in order to provide them those service level uh, objectives using data privacy. So it's all about what your consumer cares. Right. So basically moving from the operational, okay, indicators that we're so used to, to actually defining the reliability that makes sense to your client, right? This is what it's about. Absolutely. Let me give you an example. So it comes from one of the companies I worked with very closely. I will not name them, but it's a very popular consumer mobile service. And they had one of their main database services on a downtime for 20 something minutes a couple of months ago. And while you know you would say, oh my God, 20 minutes in the middle of a day for a centralized database server, this must have a horrific effect on their users. And the answer is no, because their architecture included caching of the data, lazy updates and uh, sort of like uh, eventually aligned architecture. And that particular outage did not have any effect on their service level objectives. Therefore, there needs to be a very clear separation between the technical sort of like indicators and indeed probably the database administrators should do something about it versus what the business and the customers care about. Speaking of outages though, you know, I love a good anecdote. Can you recall any interesting or funny outage that you went through? It doesn't necessarily have to be with Stackpools, but one that you like, you know, recalling and telling other people about. Not as much of an outage. I uh, usually get back to one of my first career positions as a software engineer. This was back in the 1990s. We were developing uh, sort of like a user-facing application. And uh, due to its dynamics, the only way for field engineers to troubleshoot it would be um, via sort of like messages, like message boxes that are shown to end users, but message boxes with like very elaborate errors that are being shown to operators. So uh, we did it. Uh, the product was in, I think, its uh, first uh, generally available release, and it worked pretty nicely. But it's, uh, you know, the error handling system was a bit too rigid. So it complained a lot about things, despite the fact that it kind of kept on working. But, it, oh, that file is malformed. Okay, I can still handle it. Oh, I expected here a smaller input. Okay, I can still work. But, but you would be getting these error messages quite a lot just because we were still tuning the product. And then at a certain point, some business critical event, 
forced us to really shorten the timeline to the generally available release. So uh, at a certain point, the project manager said, guys, we will like, have to cut the release right now. I remind you, it was 1995, probably, maybe 96. So in the engineering team, we just said, oh my God, this thing is so verbose in these error messages. Nobody's going to like it. Let's just disable them all, like with a single flip of a switch. <laughs> so we did that. And uh, the response we got about this version, like customers were really telling us, guys, this product is the most resilient thing we've ever seen. I mean, you can feed it completely bogus data and it still tries to process it without like erring, without complaining. I mean, sure, nothing good comes out of it, but it like really, really tries to do its job. So uh, we were like, sure, that's that's the way we planned it, right? It's all pre-planned, pre-optimized. It is a really fighter, uh, a fighter pro. So yeah, uh, that was uh, not entirely an outage, uh, but definitely not something you would do uh, after thinking uh, about it twice. Then again, the customer is always right and it ended up having a blast with it. So what do you know? I, I love how compassionate your clients were. They really appreciated the effort that the app was making. Got a lot. I'm, I'm telling you, like we, we started getting emails saying that we used previous versions of your product and they were a bit snobby. I mean, you feed them something that's bits, uh, a bit wrong. They would start complaining. They would start blocking. And this thing, it just goes on and on and on and really tries no matter what you feed into it. <laughs> okay, Leo, how does a person get started with Stackpools? Is there like a free tier? How do you do step one? So first of all, yes, uh, there is a free tier. Stackpools is a service. So we designed it in a way that the initial step would be as simple as only possible. Fully hosted service, free tier, anybody could subscribe comes with a growing amount of out-of-the-box templates so that you can relate to one of the challenges that we are already solving. Just take the existing template, apply it to your environment and see the outcome. We are increasingly investing not only in samples, but actually in how-to movie guides, etc. At the end of the day, our goal is, like I said, we'd like to reach as many people as we can who wants to automate processes, but unfortunately currently cannot do this. And we would like to make this ridiculously easy for them to adopt and start automating their first process. We are fully enterprise grade certified service, HIPAA compliant, SOC 2 compliant, ISO compliant, etc. It is really, really easy to get started in any personal or enterprise environment. And if it's not easy enough, please tell us and we will make it easier. We are fanatic about making the adoption of this thing as easy as possible, you know? It's like walking into a store, seeing something that you like and thinking to yourself, yeah, that would be uh, more expensive to leave it here than to just buy it and go home. That's the goal. So Leo, you did name a few, drop a few dates. So I would like you to share a little bit of a golden nuggets of wisdom with our audience. So two questions. First is what would be a single highest ROI thing that you did for your tech career? It can be a mindset, it can be a skill, it can be a programming language, something technical. If you were to pick just one and recommend that to our viewers, one day uh, when I was an R&D team lead, I got approached by one of our resellers. Back in the day, I worked at a company with an indirect sales and they suggested that I go out to a field and I become a keynote person at a conference that hosts uh, the users of my product. To tell you the truth, I was scared to death, right? Because I'm an engineer. I'm talking to engineers. I'm spending half of my day in front of a keyboard and a screen and suddenly I need to talk to living people, people that may be not that happy with my product, etc. It wasn't an easy leap, but it was 
the most rewarding thing I ever did in my career, changed my life, changed the way I look at things and so on. For every engineer out there, take every opportunity, seek opportunities if you don't have them to work directly with the users of whatever you're building. It is going to change your life. I have absolutely no doubt about it. Full refund guaranteed if some people are not satisfied. Okay, and the question number two, a lot of our audience still has the decisions to make with regards to their career. Like if you were to talk to, let's say a student or even a kid who looks at your LinkedIn and they say, okay, this is very impressive. I would like to be like this guy when I grow up. What would be your advice to them? First of all, my advice would never be trying to be like someone. I, I sincerely believe that the key to becoming really exceptional at what you do is in finding one thing that you are so passionate about that you simply cannot live without. And only when you find this thing and you start doing it and because you're so passionate about it you start doing it a lot and you start learning about it that is the only way to get there you cannot aim at a certain curriculum and just try to repeat it you know some some people will have that natural connection to what they're doing and eventually will end up being better than people who are just aiming at the curriculum so it has to be that thing that thing that you are personally passionate about and if you're not really doesn't matter how well paid it is, how well regarded it is, etc. If you're not passionate about something, you're never, in my humble opinion, of course, going to be great at it. And that's my advice, right? Never shoot for the curriculum, shoot for something that you can absolutely live dream uh, about every day. And that's definitely well said. Thank you so much, Leo. That's been a real pleasure. If you want to find Stackpulse, stackpulse.com is where you go. Otherwise, a very good presentation by R and LDAT at COM42, how we use open source tools to create Puerta, a gating service for Flagger. And hopefully we'll see you again. Same here. We'll be looking for more opportunities to connect. Have a wonderful day.